0: Welcome to Vet Talk with Royal Canaan, where we are going to address a wide variety of topics of interest to veterinarians and veterinary clinics. I'm Brenda Andreessen, founding partner of The Bridge Club, the first video-based community created to enable industry professionals to connect, engage, learn, and grow in just 25 minutes. Since our launch in February, 2018, more than 1,400 veterinary professionals have participated in 43 of our live and virtual events. Are great conversations, and I'm really happy to partner with Royal Canin to share the knowledge and maybe a few useful tips that you can use in your practice. So let's get started. The focus of our episode today is working with referral hospitals. So, our panelists joining us for this conversation are Dr. Kathy Meeks. Thank you, Kathy, for joining us, and Dr. Matt Jerkson. Thank you, Matt. So, a quick overview of the topic referral care is becoming an increasingly common and important part of regular veterinary care for pets. Um, And it really is a component of comprehensive veterinary care today. Father planning is really crucial in order for everybody to have the best possible seamless experience. So let's talk a little bit about what you see as best practices for the relationship between the referral practices and the general practitioners. So, Kathy, I'd appreciate you popping in here first. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, I mean,
1: I think that, um, you know, for the general practitioner, it's such an important relationship that they have with the clients. And they meet them from the time that their pet is a puppy or kitten until they're geriatric. So that relationship is unlike any relationship that we could possibly even hope to have in specialty medicine. So um, once there's an issue that um, the general practitioner really is kind of boggled with, that's when the referral general practitioner relationship should really start. And whether that's a phone call or a referral at the time. um, But our goal as far as a referral practice and as a specialist, my goal would be to partner with them in any way. You know, our goals are the same as to work towards the care of this pet and um, we want to help in any way that we can. So I think partnering best with the general practitioner really at an early stage in the disease, and that doesn't mean that they have to send it to me. That just means let's talk together and see which directions that we should be headed in. And I think that a relationship between the general practitioner and the specialist, it really starts there and making that trust and that, that relationship between us two, knowing that um, knowing that we're gonna, our goals are the same, is to help treat your patient um, that you've been
0: seeing really for their entire life. I don't know, Matt, if you wanted to add to that. Yeah, I was going to ask Matt if he felt that the general practice should reach out initially to develop those relationships, or is that Mm -hmm. something that especially practice really Mm -hmm. should take responsibility for building those relationships?
2: Well, I think um, Kathy touched on a really good point and and concept, and I think it goes to, there's actually even a third party that I think about in the relationship, which is the patient and and the client. Mm -hmm. Um, And it all comes down to communication. So I think it has to be very mutual. Um, I think some of the best practices that I've experienced is when the specialty centers are reaching out, because in general, um, as a general practitioner, you know, thinking about just the culture that's out there and stuff, it can be kind of intimidating sometimes to reach out to different specialty practices. And there's definitely a variety in the way um, that hospitals may handle cases. And so it, it's really cool when you see like a, a veterinary relations officer or a specialist reach out to you and introduce themselves and kind of tell you the protocol and the way they're, they're willing to work with their referring hospitals. And I think that starts the comfort level. But certainly if you're a very progressive general practice, um, you definitely should reach out and speak to the referral hospitals in your areas and let them know both the the good practices that you've seen and definitely some opportunities for improvement if they exist. Um, the other piece that I was going to comment on is speaking about the relationship. Um, everybody has the best intentions for the pet, and bringing the client in very early on. Kathy and I had spoken about this on um, a previous phone call. You know, bringing the client in early on on some of these cases and making sure that they know the opportunities available to them and also what's expected of them if you go down those routes. So if there's clear communication, everybody's happy.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I would touch on uh, one point that he made too, is if I do feel it's a responsibility of me to introduce myself to the general practitioners in the community, because really you have a lot of options. And unless you form that trust and build that trust, like Matt was saying, it's, it really is difficult to have someone feel comfortable to reach out to you and just you know, ask you any questions. So just call, you know, in the middle of your day and just ask question. So I definitely think that the specialist reaching out initially to introduce themselves, let them know that we're here and, and form that relationship is really important. And That's a
0: really good point. Do, do you feel, Kathy, when when GPs, general, general practices reach out to you that there's a nervousness, nervousness or a little bit of intimidation yeah. about doing that? I don't just feel that way. I know that <laughs> that happens. And and I know that happens,
1: too, because I Matt and I were talking about this. But even when I refer internally. So if I refer something to a neurologist, I get nervous. I think, oh gosh, let's make sure I did everything correctly that I, that I'm sending this referral over and that they're going to, you know, approve what their estimate is. You know, everyone gets nervous about that. But in particular, I do think I've talked to a lot of general practitioners and as I've formed the relationship and as we've um, moved on into our relationship, they have said, you know, wow, I don't know why I was nervous to reach out to you. And, um, but I get it. I totally do. Especially when you're first graduating from vet school or right out of an internship, it's very intimidating. And um, there's no reason for that. <laughs> I mean, we we all are just as nervous about the decisions we're making about, you know, our patients and what what care is most appropriate for them doesn't matter the level of training you have everyone everyone always always has that imposter syndrome of am i doing the right thing for this pet so there's no reason to feel the nervousness but i get it because i also get that way when i transfer internally so
0: yeah, and to that point i mean that you know have you seen or heard any tips or guidelines that are really good for a practice to share um, you know with their practitioners about here's what you should do when you're reaching out to a specialty practice
2: um, I think, you know, it's it's two-sided. I wanted to just comment real quickly on what Kathy said. I think one thing that specialists can do for general practitioners is there's a fear, especially when you first get out of school, you're used to when you're discussing cases, getting asked a lot of questions, a lot of whys. Um, that's certainly the environment in academics, right? Like trying to discover what's your knowledge base and then, and then find how to improve that as well as assess your clinical knowledge to grade you. And I think when you get out, um, some of those some of those times don't leave you. So I think specialists can really play a role in being very forthcoming with information as opposed to, you know, making it sound like an inquisition when you refer. And I've been very fortunate that I've never had that experience since graduating, but I think that's a fear among colleagues. And Kathy touched on how even, you know, when she refers as an internist, sometimes she thinks that. Um, For best practices, I mean, every Practice that I've worked at, and I've worked in both corporate and private practices, um, has different protocols on when it's appropriate to refer and how that works, and different hospitals that they work with. And I think that's something that the practice owner, or the manager, or medical director, or whoever's that making that decision, um, needs to have those meetings with their associates and talk about what that communication looks like. Um, I think as a practitioner, it's really important that you, the tests and, you know, the data that you're sending over, that you make sure you're sending over relevant stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, When I refer, I usually try to give a really clear case synopsis. And even if I'm referring digitally, I usually will spell out, like, what I'm thinking and and what I'm looking for just to be really, really clear. And especially with... um, Sometimes referring for imaging service, services, stuff like that, that I'm looking for, you know, a differential diagnosis or something a little bit more than sometimes you would get typically if you just send a patient.
0: Well, there it's interesting because there are articles that have been written about the knowledge gap, right? And the knowledge gap being something that kind of is a chasm between some referral practices and some, some general practices. So do you think, is that a real thing in your mind or is that something that um, is just sounding great in the media?
2: Describe, Brenda, more like what you mean by knowledge gap.
0: That the information coming from the general practice to the referral practice or the specialty practice is not enough to help them do their job effectively. And then on the other hand, I've also read some articles where the the referral practice itself is saying, well, I don't know how to make a good decision because I'm missing this information. So, you know, is there a a gap in understanding what kind of information is necessary getting it or just not knowing what the problem is that they're being dealt with. So I feel like that's a multifaceted question, but it all kind of rolls up into one big ball. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. And I thank you. I don't what? really
1: <laughs> um, I don't really feel um, a knowledge gap in any way. Look, we're all We're all very smart people. I'm not trying to toot our own horns, but, you know, we're an elite group of people who have gotten into veterinary school. So we all have the same, you know, education and, um, there's no knowledge gap there, in my opinion. Um, there can be a gap if, like Matt was saying, we don't get the full complete record. Sometimes we have to repeat things if it's on the overnight and that can cause a little bit of confusion, but, There's no, there's never been a gap for me where I don't understand something that the referring vet has done. I think that really starting that relationship at a time where we can talk together before the client shows up so that we both have the same expectations of what needs to be done um, diagnostically and um, if you're referring over for an ultrasound, I almost always just say, okay, let's start with the ultrasound and hopefully we get our information and maybe we might have to do further diagnostics. But I like to be on the same page of what the referring vet is wanting. And um, I typically try and abide by what they have talked to the client about and what they're expecting. So Anyway, long story short, I don't think that there's actually a knowledge gap, but I'll let you.
2: Yeah, I I agree with you. I don't think um, I I haven't witnessed myself a a major knowledge gap or or experienced that. Uh, I think one of the areas that sometimes causes some confusion is, you know, in general practice, like. How far you're taking a case before you refer. And that goes back to what I was saying originally with communicating with the client. Um, And, you know, I had experienced recently, which we had discussed before, where a client came in and I knew the dog had had an acute bleed. And I knew that if we were going to pursue some type of curative treatment, it was going to require a referral, especially being on a weekend. And so I very early on stated that this is like my hypothesis of what's going on, did a very quick, you know, CBC just to prove out my first theory and then said, you know, we can either go two directions. We can continue to explore what caused this. Or, you know, if you're thinking about surgery and these are the options that could have caused this problem in your in your animal, um, we may want to consider referral right away. And because of that clear communication with the client, we did go on to do some additional testing, um, just to screen for other diseases, went on to do some imaging. And they were part of that the whole way, as well as like communicating with your clients when you're referring to a specialist that certain tests may be repeated, because it's not like what happened, you know, in the morning in that time frame, things could have changed later. I think from a specialist side of things, and I've been very blessed that like this has happened when I've referred, um, that they just give the benefit of the doubt to some of the tests that the GPs have done. And I think where you see confusion or issues with that sometimes is um, possibly in people that are, you know, relatively fresh out, or, or possibly if you were in in, some place that's like more focused on um, cranking out testing and and I haven't really experienced that in my area. You hear those you know, stories as a general practitioner. But I I think those are stories from the past and probably not, you know, in 2019 really occurring. And if you have confusion with your referral center, I think, you know, you should have open communication and speak to them about what your concerns are.
0: Well, an excellent point, too, you make about the communication with the client. So they understand the expectations and what you're doing for them versus what might have to be done once they get to, you know, to the specialty hospital. So, obviously client outcomes are, are what everybody's looking for the best possible client outcome. So do you have any tips on how both the general practice and the specialty practice can best talk with the client then about what the expectations are so that you're managing together, Mm -hmm. you know, that positive outcome?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely recommend always, if you're thinking that you may refer whether the client wants to or not, I would just call, um, who you're comfortable with. Um, you know, for example, if I've had a couple um, diabetes cases that have come over um, that I've tried to help manage remotely and, and over the phone, and, and, you know, after a certain point, I say, you, you might want to refer because at this point, we, we may need to do further testing, like ultrasound if you don't have that, and CT and that sort of thing. So I think getting the specialist involved as soon as you feel like it may need um, a referral because. At that time, we can give you advice of, nope, you're on the right track. Maybe do a couple more of these tests. And if you still can't get it, you know, the blood sugar normalized, you may want to think about referring. And then you can also do another thing at that time and say, if your client were to be referred and they do want to come over, here are the kind of initial tests that I would recommend doing. Here's an initial price that you can um, set them up for, because really, it's an it's kind of like I, I think about myself going to my own doctor and I want them to do what they can do. And if they can't do it, I want them to refer me somewhere. But it's an inconvenience for me to go somewhere else. So I would rather you just do you do that stuff. Um, I don't want to we don't want to inconvenience the client in any way if we don't need to. But we also want to get them the, the care that they need if if they do need to see a specialist, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, and it's the same thing um, I believe we've been talking about. It's just clear expectations. So what I usually do is is exactly what Kathy said, explain what's going to happen. And then also, um, I think it's really important to provide a clear expectation of the costs Um, and and the time and where the location is and what's going to be involved. And to be aware also, you're walking into an emergency room. I think specialty centers today are very, very efficient, but it's not like you necessarily have a 9.30 or a 10 o'clock appointment time and should expect to be seen. Um, But for me, the thing that I've seen, um, the biggest disconnect is when people aren't given uh, for – whether we want to admit it or not, like a cost estimate of what it's going to look like. Um, and I usually will, I will always actually call the specialist that I'm referring to and get an idea of what's happening, what the time frame is, and then share that with the client. And then they can make the best decision. And sometimes it is also, you know, comfort of care. There are certain clients that are more comfortable staying in your, your practice. And if I have somebody that I think really, we've reached um, the limit of what we can do you know, properly, um, I'll, I'll explain that to them and say, you know, this is the next step that you need to take and try to walk them through that.
1: I would agree on the specialist side um, that the biggest disconnect that I have seen or um, when, when clients show up and they become angry is because they weren't prepared enough for the estimate. And um, that really just does take a phone call, Um, and I know that everyone gets busy and you don't always have time for that phone call, but sometimes what will happen is they'll call the receptionist. The receptionist will quote the exam fee, and they'll come in and they'll say, well, I was told it was, you know, $100, let's say, and then you give them the estimate of $800, which includes the ultrasound, the aspirate, the cytology, and that sort of thing. So I do think, you know, talking one-on-one if you have the time and if you can in the day um, with the specialist, because you're going to know exactly what I'm going to recommend and exactly, maybe not exactly, how much it's going to cost, but at least the first year diagnostics that it would cost. Um, So I think that that's, I would agree with that. That's the times that I see them least prepared is if they don't know what it's going to cost when they get over. And
2: something thinking back to that, um, I use this as an example in my puppy and kitten talks of why the importance of why pet owners should consider pet insurance. I was just going to mm. say yeah. Good one, yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think it's a great talking mm-hmm. point. And um, I think because a lot of times when you're having these conversations, the other thing that I'm very cognizant of um, when I'm speaking to clients is Some of these cases, you're in a very emotionally charged situation. The case that I described earlier was um, not an easy case. They didn't come over there. The dog had been waxing and waning for, you know, probably about a week, I think it was, And so they were not prepared for what we were facing, which is a terminal illness that we found out later with the diagnostics I did really didn't have an opportunity for a cure. Um, And so you need to be willing, I think, to also read your clients, let them make the decision, but also make sure they understand that, like, they're not being bad pet owners, that they have to take the whole picture into account. And sometimes I use examples like, you know, an animal's not a a car. Like you can't just, you know, replace a part and expect that you have a year warranty on that. Because I think we all also um, have been guilty of, or I'll speak to myself, that, you know, you're really passionate about the medicine and the case and the animal welfare and making sure that you're taking the big picture into account and you're not Putting somebody, I think we've all had those clients that will, you know, remortgage their house, take their kids' college loans out, and put themselves in a situation because you're in a very emotionally charged situation. I never want to tell anybody how to spend their resources or how they should feel, but as a veterinarian, in those situations, we're we're in a very powerful place. You can make somebody feel really guilty. And my father actually told me an inch because I really struggled with this um, when I first got out, like dealing with this topic of, you know, one of the things that my father said as well is you can really like as you get experience you can really learn your clients and like if you really look in somebody's eyes you can tell like who's who and who's what and learn where to push so for me i'm very careful because it's it's not my place to do anything more than advocate for the animal's welfare that's what the oath is about and that's what that's why i went into this but also to make sure that the client is making the best decision for themselves because like with the case i was talking about You know, to spend $3,000 on a referral just for some supportive care when you have a mass in the abdomen that obviously bled and and METS in the lungs, you know, there's a whole other picture to that. And they have to be really aware. And that's where you can either really gain a client or lose a client. And like I said again, just to, and I'll let Kathy give her opinion, I think this is why it's crucial with where technology is going. We were having this conversation at lunch before this podcast with, you know, MRIs, CTs, um, you know, all the different. And surgical procedures we can do. Mm-hmm. Having health insurance or at least doing some type of financial planning for, you know, how you're going to take care of this pet long term is critical. And it's a need that I see improvement. A lot more clients are coming into um, at least the practice where I work and I'm seeing they have pet insurance or they're, they're letting me know that at the end of exams. Um, but I think it's crucial also that we continue to explore what we can do in those areas.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that um, what was interesting to me is knowing that less than 1% of the U.S. population actually has pet insurance. And when we look at the our pet population at Blue Pearl at a referral center, um, about 15% have pet insurance. So what that tells me is the ones that come to us that agree to referral are usually the ones that have pet insurance. And so I definitely think it starts from the beginning. It's very important to start talking about that. I, I also think that the financial part of veterinary medicine is a lot of what creates compassion fatigue and helps. And, you know, I think that would be very helpful to us if everyone just had pet insurance um, that would, you know, lift a lot of the burden on us
0: and, and the guilt that we feel in, in those charged situations. So. so all really good points about a really important conversation. You know, it's interesting because it does seem to come down to as it often does in these conversations about veterinary care building the relationship with the client right at the general practice level gathering the facts and sharing them with each other which you guys talk so eloquently about i think that's just a phenomenally important point for people to gather and then communicating that Mm -hmm. both to the pet owner. you talked over and over again about the expectations and talking with each other and um, people just don't seem to quite get the fact that if you talk about it Mm -hmm everything is instantly just a little bit better. So I think this has been a really fabulous conversation and I really appreciate you guys taking the time to to talk great, great back and forth camaraderie here. And I hope that everybody who listens to this podcast will truly feel that same kind of synergy um, that the two of you have obviously displayed here. So really, really a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us.